Tonight, go home and read about the Battle of Wounded Knee. It wasn't much of a battle, to tell you the truth. 1890, Pine Ridge Reservation, South Dakota. I visited there, oh, I've forgotten how many years ago, a few years ago. And at the entrance to the little park, they have a, a ranger. He's a U.S. ranger. And he's, a, we'd call him an Indian in the old days, see, we'd call him an Indian, but he's a Native American. And he's a, he was a big guy and he had a ponytail down about halfway to his back. He had it done up in a, with a rubber band. And he looked like he'd be a formidable opponent if you had to redo the Battle of Wounded Knee. That was the last major conflict between the United States and the American Indians. And it wasn't uh, pretty. On account of that, and the way the Indians were treated, the group got together in 1973 and kind of staged another sit-in and had a little trouble there, and a few people were actually killed. But uh, Barney Five said that in today's world, Henry Ford could never get his Model T on the road. They wouldn't let the sucker out of the garage. You know that. It was unsafe. The brakes were faulty. The steering was, well, it's pretty marginal. I, they wouldn't let that thing on the road today. Think about it. And if we had the Supreme Court of this era, never could have taken the land from the Indians. Supreme Court wouldn't allow that. So timing, Barney says, is everything. And so it was for God's people as well, we'd be talking about today. Before we begin, let's pray. Holy Father, for this good day, we are grateful for the opportunity of gathering together to consider lessons from your word. Give us a desire to know the truth, and more importantly, give us a desire to live as we should. Forgive our weaknesses. Be with us in everything we do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Here we go. Now the people had sent, Joshua had sent the spies. A lots of difference from the period of 40 years previously. He sent two spies in and they came back and gave an account of what they needed to do, or the information that Joshua wanted. You know, if you think about it, you kind of wonder, why did they need spies anyhow? I mean, God's in charge of this operation. He's going to see that it is successful, but why then do the spies need to go and find out anything? What difference does it make? Well, we'll see in this account, as in many, many accounts, in fact, I suppose nearly all, that God doesn't miraculously do for anyone what they can do. And besides that, he is looking to find out if they have the fortitude, 
the faith to follow through after all this time. What a tremendous story and a a terribly sad story to think of this nation of people wandering in the wilderness, as you say, for a period of 40 years. And we'll find out that many things had been suspended. We'll get to that in a moment. But first, let's get them to, they were in Shittim, or Shittim, where they lodged three days. <coughs> then they come to the river. And we'll just take up the account here. Joshua rose early in the morning. They set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan. He and all the people of Israel and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the count, commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant, the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall sit out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priest, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into Jordan. Now therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people. And as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at the dam, or Adam, the salt sea, or the city, I'm sorry, that is beside Zarethan. And those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, The salt sea were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. 
the Jordan at flood stage. And it says this was harvest time. We come to think of harvest as being later in the year, the Jewish calendar. However, we notice that the harvest of barley and flax was early on. And so this is the time. And we know that because in the next chapter, we'll have them observing the Passover. And that was in the first month, remember. And the first month was in the spring. Commonly would be Abib, April, Nisan, they called it later on. So this was the springtime. And the Jordan is at flood stage. Now the Jordan River is called Descender, and not for nothing. This river arises in the area of Mount Hermon, far, far to the north from here. And it's fed by certain springs, several of them. They feed into a small lake, Hula. That small lake continues on, or the Jordan does from there, to the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. And from there, it goes further into the Dead Sea, where everything ends. The Jordan is really quite a gorge especially the northern section. Steep cliffs, ragged terrain, and a narrow valley for the most part. At this time, it would have been some maybe 200 feet wide. Normally it would have been 90 to 100 feet. You have seen rivers at flood stage and you see the stuff that comes down those rivers, the debris, flotsam, the uh, trees, all kind of stuff coming down. It is a daunting sight to see, to tell you the truth. And notice that they came and they stayed three days. And you wonder, well, is there any significance to that? Perhaps so. Perhaps God wanted them to see what they were facing. And so they had time to kind of stand and look, or sit and look. Now, this auditorium, uh, I don't know how far it is, Jim Henry does, from the podium there to the back. But it's, it's farther than 90 feet, because I know how far a baseball diamond is. And so I'm guessing that from where I'm standing to about the door back there is about second base from home plate. So that's not as wide as the Jordan was at that time. This was a bad-looking river. You know, if you go to Israel today, you can go right down to the Jordan River. Of course, it's not what it used to be. And the reason is because of the water that has been taken out of and has been taken out of the Sea of Galilee. They had to be careful how they do that. <laughs> well, <coughs> not so much how, but how much? Because there is salt in the bottom of it as well. And if they take too much out, the salt content will rise and actually pollute the Sea of Galilee. Nevertheless, you can go down to the Jordan at certain places. In fact, they're happy for you to go because if you are a tourist, they'll take your money and they have a 
a visitor station at certain places, uh, close to Jericho, as a matter of fact. And you can go there and see the Jordan. And at that point, it's, it's not as far as from here to that exit door over there, across it. But they've built all kinds of stuff. They've got steps where you can go down into it. And I observed a person, well, more than one, being baptized in the Jordan River. And that was just a right that somebody wanted to do, you know. Interesting, but I suppose they felt like it was particularly significant to be baptized in the Jordan. But you don't want to swim in it very much because it's not fit for swimming and other things today. The Dead Sea, you can swim in the Dead Sea. They've got some modern five-star hotels sitting on the, um, the bank, almost on the bank. Several of them. So you can go to, people like to go to these places. You can go down and swim in the Dead Sea, and it's, it'll make your feet hurt if you don't have flip-flops on because there's rocks on there. But it's quite an experience to swim in the Dead Sea. You can do that. But you won't see what these people saw. Not at all. It's a totally different thing because the water that's being taken out of the Sea of Galilee has had a tremendous effect on the size of the river and everything out. it. The Jordan River is about 686 feet below sea level where it enters the Sea of Galilee. In all, it's about 124 miles long. But of course, like most rivers, it meanders to such an extent that it's about twice that length by the time you get down to the Dead Sea. And there, it is 1,300 feet below sea level. This is the lowest river gorge on the face of the earth. Think about that. And... If you put yourselves in their position, they're looking at a swollen stream that is really coming down speedily. This river drops an average of nine feet per mile. Now that don't sound like too much if you say it like that, but it's a lot for a river, average. That means it's creating some cataracts and... They had to stop and think about this. But of course, they were in a different position from when the people crossed the Red Sea. It reminds us of that. When 40 years earlier, they crossed the Red Sea. At this time, they were being threatened from behind, and so they don't have much choice but to go ahead. They move on. Here, they're looking at walking into the teeth of armed people. But we see that that's not going to be a big problem. Interestingly enough, this is probably about the same place Jesus was baptized. Down close to Jericho. Baptized by John the Baptist, of course. Can you imagine now the scene? Well, you can imagine. You have to imagine. I have to imagine. Because it's a real story. I mean, it's a real event. These people are camped here. (coughs) And my allergy is driving me crazy today. 
I don't know how I ever got by without Hall's cough drops, but uh, I can't put one in my mouth and talk at the same time. Too good. So here they are. How many people are here? How many folks? It's not just a, a congregation this size here. It's not just um, a couple of thousand. It's not 3,000. It's not 4,000. How many people do you think in this group? <coughs> we know about how many came out of Egypt. And how many was that? By the population of Mississippi, a little better. They came out of Egypt. That's a lot of people. May not be quite that many now, but it's still a lots of folks. More than 100,000. Because we noticed there were 40,000 men that could bear arms here in this group. 40,000. So we're talking about at least 700,000 people here. It can't. And what effect did this have on the people on the other side? Well, they were already kind of worried because Rahab told the spies, uh, we've heard about what happened. And we've heard about the Israelites and people are very fearful, but just wait. They're going to be even more fearful. <laughs> so the logistics of getting this many people together somehow or another and telling them to move on and get ready. And then notice that the priests, the Levitical priests, were the ones to bear the ark. They didn't commonly do that. And remember that all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests, right? But the priests are going to do this job. This shows the great importance of the ark and throughout Israel history. This was a very important thing. And think of this. The consummation now of 40 years. The people looking forward to this. Those that were 28 years and younger. Those that were born in the meantime. They're all going to get to go in. Unhappily, Moses and his generation, except for who? Just a few, Joshua and Caleb, the rest of them die, and they're not going to go into the land of Canaan. You put all this together, and it is really, really an intriguing story, intriguing events. And here they are, ready to go. And so the priest, when they come to the water, they step, I suppose, in it, and then the water stops. A marvelous miracle. Before they got this far, however, the people had to consecrate themselves. They had to get ready for what was going to happen. They had to prepare themselves mentally. They had to prepare themselves spiritually. They had to wash their bodies. They had to wash their clothes and maybe that, again, was this three days that they were waiting at the riverbank or very near it. <laughs> They're going into a land occupied by these ites that we talked about here. Many times they're called simply Canaanites. However, the Canaanites were a special group 
Perizzites, Jebusites, Girgashites, and so on. A lot of people living there. And, you know, they didn't particularly want somebody else coming in and taking their land. They really weren't too keen on this idea. But nevertheless, the water has stopped. <coughs> and someone, <coughs> someone asked, how does that happen? Well, <coughs> the Red Sea was parted, as we know. And so if God can part the Red Sea, he can certainly keep the Jordan from flowing. Interestingly enough, God has often used certain natural events to accompany his miracles or to work those miracles. It was in 1811-1812 that the great leader Tecumseh predicted the trees were going to fall. This was going to be a sign of his strong medicine. And sure enough, an earthquake happened. The earthquake happened in, along the Missouri area that actually stopped the Mississippi River. In fact, it flowed backwards for a while. And today, Real Foot Lake, people fish on it and have a good time boating. That was created from the earthquake of 1812. So God may have used an earthquake. We don't know. But it, whatever he did, he did it by his power. And the river rose up in a heap. <clears throat> so the people passed over. How long did it take? Were they four abreast? Or eight abreast? Or twelve abreast? Or whatever. We don't know that. But we know there's a lot of people going across that river. A dry riverbed now. And the priests are standing there with the Ark of the Covenant. Yes, sir. He's saying, <coughs> he's, yeah. <laughs> you created real problem. A leg- Okay, he's created a real logistic problem. I wish you could have heard everything he said, but he's exactly right. All of the processions, the cattle, and so on, and they had to stay away from the uh, Ark of the Covenant a certain distance. So this river dried up. And naturally, if it dries up to the north of it, which would have been, then it's going to be dried up to the south in a few minutes, right? And the water is going to all flow on. So they had uh, plenty of room get across, but it took, uh, I'm telling you, to be in charge of an expedition like this would be something to see. It really would. So this, they get across. And then, in chapter 4, when they'd finished crossing, passing, God told Joshua to take 12 men from the people from each tribe, a man. Command them, saying, take 12 stones, from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from every place where the priest's feet stood firmly. 
Bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. So I'm going to skip down a little bit. So they did that. They took the stones with them and they went to Gilgal and set those up. But they also put 12 stones in the midst of the river. And the writer tells us they're still there when he was writing this account. Which is interesting to me. I'll leave it to you as to how this happened and why. It would appear to me, he said they had to take them these stones on the shoulder. Well, <clears throat> this means 12 men, and even strong men, let me tell you, a pretty good sized boulder. You, if you've watched the... Uh, strongest man in the world thing, when they pick up those round stones, these guys weigh 300 pounds and they have a hard time picking up those stones weigh 240 pounds or so. Uh, so these, they stack them up. I don't believe these people put 240 pounds on their shoulders. I, I don't know. They could have, but done that. But what I'm getting to is that when they put them, whatever they put, the size of the stones in the river... It seems like, what, what difference did that make? Could you see them? Uh, the river's at flood stage right now. And so it looks to me like those stones are going to be totally covered and you won't be able to know they're there. But the writer says they're still there to this day. So however they did that, I don't know. I'll leave it with you. I think it's quite interesting. Nevertheless, they did that. And why do you think they did that well, did it because God said to, but I mean the importance of this monument of stone reminds us of through the ages God has used certain things as memorials. We have our memorials today, and we've got them all around the country, as a matter of fact. The Washington Monument, the Lincoln Memorial, Jefferson Memorial, all that in Washington, D.C., as well as um, statues in our state capital here in Montgomery. And what are those things for? Well, they're to remind people of something that happened, something that was important. And so this, the significance of this event cannot be overemphasized. It was truly the culmination of all of the wondering and the dreams and the hopes of this generation of people. And being led by Joshua, and, and we're told that God said, I'm going to start exalting you this day, as I did Moses. So God has given Joshua a special commission and special blessings. And of course, he's always been a faithful servant anyway. Interestingly enough, we can look at the time this event is going on, and if we put the dates together we could come to an age of Joshua being close to 80 years old, maybe 78 to 80 years old, when this is taking place. So it reminds us of Moses getting his commission when he was 80 years old. So they passed over, and it says there are 40,000 men ready for war. And I think that's significant that he makes that commentary. <coughs> because... As we look at chapter 5, we see that as soon as all the kings of the Amorites, who were beyond the Jordan to the west, 
And all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they crossed. Their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. I imagine so. Just as Rahab and the people of Jericho had heard about God bringing these people on their journey and the things that he'd done, you wouldn't keep this a secret, would you? I mean, you imagine, as Jim pointed out a few minutes ago, the size of this gathering, of this encampment. Well, anybody close around, somebody's going to be watching this, going to be seeing it, they're going to be unbelieving. They're going to say, what in the world is going on? And somebody comes back with a report, said, you're not going to believe what I saw. I saw the Jordan River was at flood stage, and it stopped. It stopped, and the water just backed up. And a whole nation, and you know it says nation here, whole nation came across the Jordan River. How are we going to fight these people? Their hearts melted. Now that's an interesting expression, isn't it? When your heart melts, you, you know you're in trouble. Now they're going to rally themselves and fight, but the point is, they are not feeling very good right now. It's not a happy day. Then as we read further, we see that God told Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. <coughs> so Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Hireloth. And this is the reason. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, died in the wilderness on the way after they came out of Egypt. Though all the people came out, or who had came out, had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they'd come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. So they walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation and the men of the war who came out of Egypt perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. So he swore them, swore them he would not bring them into this land. So they circumcised these ones who had not been circumcised and they waited here until all of them had healed. And God told Joshua, Today I've rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you, and so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. <clears throat> Notice further, verse 10, While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after, the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. So they'd had manna, and of course quail for a good while, all during these journeyings, and their shoes didn't wear out, their clothes didn't wear out. God took care of them. But they had not observed the Passover. They had not observed the rite of circumcision as well. So, in a true sense, the covenant had kind of been suspended. 
for the rank and file person. Now, it's a new day. They're on the other side of Jordan, and their spirits are high because God has brought them across. They've seen this marvelous event, witnessed it, been part of it. And now they are prepared mentally and spiritually for what is to come. And you might think, well, while these ones had been circumcised, the people were in no mood or no condition to fight. That's not true because there were still those, you see, who were under 20. Therefore, they had been circumcised. And that's apparently the group that they were depending on in case there was an attack from the people of Canaan, which, of course, did not come. I think something very interesting here, at the conclusion of that chapter, 5, Joshua's by Jericho. Now, I'm not sure what that expression means. He was close to it. He must have gone out kind of on his own to look and see, maybe even get a glimpse of the city. That's what it indicates. But a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. Joshua did so. Interesting, who was this commander of the Lord's army? He's, he's coming out here to look at Jericho, assess it, and there's a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword. And Joshua said, Whose side are you on? Are you for us or for the adversaries? And he said, No, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. Take off your shoes. Because where you're standing is holy ground. Joshua fell on his face and worshipped him. Well, <clears throat> interesting, isn't it? Remember God's instruction to Moses at the burning bush? He told him to, what? Take off your sandals because this is a holy place. So this is the instruction that Joshua had, and he knew it was a holy place. So is this an angel here? No, it's not an angel, is it? And why do I know it's not an angel? Sir? That's not to worship angels. That's right. If this had been an angel, he would have said to Joshua, as the angel in the book of Revelation said to John, get up because you don't need to be worshiping me, right? But since Joshua worshiped, this commander of the Lord's army, and he accepted that worship. We know that it wasn't an angel. It was who? It was Jesus, wasn't it? That's right. An interesting event. That's not the only time we find an account of Jesus appearing in the Old Testament. 
Sometimes he's called the angel of the Lord, as a matter of fact. But that word angel doesn't mean that he's an angel in the sense that a typical angel or average angel. So he said, and in essence, Joshua was saying, what kind of instruction? And did he tell him? <laughs> he didn't give him any instruction. Not specifically. He just told him to take off his sandals because this was holy ground. What does my Lord say to his servant? What you want to, what you want me to do? What are you going to say to me? Take off your shoes. This is holy ground. He didn't need to say a lot, did he? The fact that he's there, man, what a feeling Joshua must have had to realize that this being, this heavenly being here who has the sword in his hand is really in control. He's going to take care of everything. So all he has to do is to follow. All he has to do is have faith and keep the instructions of God. Do what God has asked him to do. If you really... So much could be said about all of these events here. The time would not allow, but John did want me to try to get through these chapters and at least set that picture. But in in my mind, to think of all of this happening here, after all of the years that they've had, to the trials, the difficulties on the way, the fact that really God was so angry with the people that he was going to destroy them or wanted to destroy them and elevate Moses. Remember that Moses interceded on behalf of the people and said, if you do this, God, then it'll get out and people realize you've destroyed your own folks that you brought out of Egypt. So please don't do that. So God relented, but he did say, on account of the people's unbelief, remember the report of the ten as opposed to the report of the two, that the people all wanted to basically lynch Moses and Aaron. And why have you brought us out here to a place we can't take? Uh, the inhabitants thereof looked like giants, and we were like grasshoppers in our own sight compared to them. And God said, you will not enter into the land of Canaan, so on. Whole generation, bones fell and were buried in the wilderness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Apostle Paul talks about this. And he said, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that our forefathers all came out of Egypt, were baptized with Moses in the cloud and in the sea, did all eat the same spiritual food, and did all drink the same Spiritual drink for the drink of the rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. He said, Howbeit, with most of them, God was not well pleased because they were overthrown in the wilderness. And he goes on to say that these things happened to them by way of example, and we should not follow what they did. It's a terrible thing to contemplate. A nation coming out of Egypt being freed with the many miracles that were performed. 
And they get to Kadesh Barnea, send the spies out, and they come back with an evil report. And the people listen to those ten guys instead of Joshua and Caleb who tore their clothes and said, we can do this. Let's go. But does that show us something? You can't lead when people won't follow. You can't lead when people will not follow. And so Joshua and Caleb and Moses, of course, knew what God wanted. They were faithful. But the people rebelled. And the comparison between that generation and this is quite dramatic. Because here, these people are ready. And they have learned. Which proves to us that we can learn. And we should learn. We have to learn. So, wherefore let him that thinketh he standeth, Paul says, take heed, lest he fall. So we need to remember and elevate the great example of this generation and what they did. And paint the picture as if you had your own personal movie of this scene where this mass of people come to the edge of the river, the flood stage, And when the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant stepped to the water's edge, it stops flowing. And then this whole nation crosses that Jordan on dry ground. They keep the Passover. They practice the rite of circumcision. They begin eating the produce of the land, parched, Grain don't sound too good to me, but I guess they did a certain thing that made it better. Now it's a new day, and they're ready for the task. And it'll happen soon, because they're going to go against a fortified city in a very unusual way. Thank you so much for your time today.